as we have been studying through the book of Nehemiah, learning much about this man's service to the Lord and to his people, we come to these three passages or chapters that we've looked at, or two of them we've looked at already, chapters 8, 9, and today we want to look at chapter 10. Also this week, the festival of Shavuot has been observed, the celebration of the coming of the giving of the law to the people of Israel is what the Jewish people celebrate on this occasion, and it's also the time in which the Spirit of God was poured out upon the people of Israel, upon those who heard the apostles, the messengers of the good news, as recorded in the Brit HaDashah in Acts chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 10, we see this third segment of revival that is shared with us in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We remember that Nehemiah heard the news regarding what had transpired in Jerusalem that he had learned that the walls had fallen down, that over the last 140 years they had not yet been restored. The people were living under the fear of invasion and the lack of security. Not only that, but the people also did not have a revived relationship with God. There is a need to rebuild But there was also a need for the Lord to visit his people and to provide them with revival. We might say today, a special measure of his spirit to enliven them to him and to his will. So that after we read of the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, Nehemiah then turns his attention to the next thing he's concerned about. And that the people would be renewed in their spirit and would be made to live a life that is honorable before the Lord. In chapter 7, we saw the first of the components that leads to revival in the human heart, in a congregation, in one's community. It is first and foremost a responsiveness to God's word. It's the presentation of God's word. And so in chapter 7, we see Ezra lifted up on this platform, reading the word of God to the people. We see him flanked by fellow Levites who are translating this word to the people so that they might understand it. We see them mingling with the people and not only restating what was read, but also giving some instruction and interpretation To its meaning. And so, first and foremost, is the presentation of God's word. And the second thing we see in chapter 9 is that the people then respond to the word as it is read and explained. And they mourn for their sin. They have a sense of sorrow that leads to repentance. Not just sorrow because of consequences that might have been experienced but a repentance that, and sorrow that leads to a repentive heart, a heart that wants to turn from those ways and wants to turn unto the ways of God. In fact, they were so mournful that Nehemiah and Ezra instruct the people to stop mourning, to go home and to celebrate because now the walls are complete. Now the word of God is being presented and is being read and is meant to give life. And while it is to remind us of our need, it's not to leave us there, but it's to result in life that would find itself in rejoicing in the very presence and will of God. 
And so, first of all, they hear the word. Secondly, they are moved in their heart. And they repent of their sin. In chapter 10, they make a a third statement or a third step that leads to revival in their hearts and a revival to the nation. If you look at chapter 9, beginning at verse 38, it says, In view of all of this, in view of the word of God that's been presented, its truths, and in view of the fact that we realize that we have not lived up to them, we have not observed them as we ought. In verse 38, it says, In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it in chapter 10 are listed for us. First of all, there is Nehemiah the governor, and then a number of other civil servants that are listed. Then we have in verse 9, the Levites, and a number of them are stated. And then in verse 14, we read of the leaders and rulers of the people. And we read of their names. And then in verse 28, we read the rest of the people. Priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. They went the third step, which is not only to have heard the word and responded to it, but now to enter into a covenantal relationship with God where they were now determined in their hearts to live differently. In order to signify that determination, they write an agreement, and they sign it, and they seal it. Initially, when I was reading these words, I thought I might have passed out some paper that would have us signing and sealing in what ways would we want to live for the Lord. What things do we need corrected in our lives? What things do we want to move further in that we see God developing in our lives? What things do we want to do? What things do we want to avoid? And of course, whenever we think of things like that, there are all kinds of mixed responses and emotions. For some, it reminds us of the fact that when we sign such things, we never live up to them. We sort of have in our minds ideals that we would like to experience or do, but then we find out in a little time that too often we fail to live up to those things and we refrain from the notion of actually signing things and writing things and sort of permanentizing things before the Lord. But on the other hand, there are many instances where signed documents are critical, aren't they? Here's one in the book of Nehemiah where they are signing a document that they state before the Lord we're going to do. In the history of our nation, there were signed documents indicating what we would do in the Declaration of Independence. Those that signed it said that they were willing to give up their, uh, their fortunes, their lives, and even their sacred honor. And many of them did give up their lives. Most of them lost all of their fortunes. None of them, however, lost their sacred honor. I remember reading uh, years ago when I was sort of fully immersed in the Civil War. And there was hardly anything anyone could ask me about the Civil War that I didn't know. 
And now it's been a long time since I've read some of those books and volumes and the time, you know, the time a multi-volume set on the Civil War. But I do remember that after the Battle of Antietam in Maryland in September 17th in 1862, it was after the Battle of Antietam that Abraham Lincoln had given the Emancipation Proclamation. Haven't seen the movie yet. Uh, (laughs) But um, it was after that battle. And it was the day in which more American lives were lost than any other moment. In a 12-hour period, some 25,000 soldiers had lost their lives. That's like 2,000 deaths an hour on that battlefield. Hundreds of thousands of men were massed on that field against each other. It was after that battle that Lincoln met with his cabinet. And he had said to his cabinet that when the Confederate armies had entered Frederick, Maryland, in southern Maryland, as the Confederate soldiers were marching north, they went first to South Mountain and then to, uh, to Harper's Ferry. They had um, taken control of the arsenal at Harper's Ferry. Stonewall Jackson had captured more American soldiers than at any other time in history up until the Japanese had captured the American soldiers on the island of Bataan. He circled his artillery around that city and forced them to surrender. Meanwhile, Lee took his troops up to Antietam, where the Battle of Antietam was fought. There were really three phases to that battle. From the north, there were troops, Union troops that came through a cornfield, and they were slaughtered. There were Union troops that came across the Antietam River through the center of the Confederate line, and they were slaughtered. And then at the Burnside Bridge, Burnside brought his troops across the Antietam on that bridge and began to push the Confederate troops back. It was then that Stonewall Jackson returned to the battlefield from Harper's Ferry, was able to come to their aid and push the Union troops back to their lines. And so scholars would say, historians would say that the battle ended in a draw. But if you were to mark that battlefield or if you were to gauge who won the battle by virtue of who controlled the battlefield at the end of the war or at the end of that battle, it was the Union troops because the Confederates were forced to retreat from Maryland and to go back into northern Virginia. Lincoln had said to his cabinet after the Battle of Antietam that when the Confederate troops entered Maryland, he had made a promise. He had made a promise, first of all, to himself that if the Confederate troops were moved out of Maryland, he would issue an emancipation that would proclaim the release of the slaves in Union-occupied territories. He said to his cabinet members, he made that promise to himself and didn't tell anyone. And then he said, and he hesitatingly made that promise to his maker. And now he said to his cabinet, without any discussion, without any debate, I had promised my maker I would issue the proclamation. And thus, after that battle, when the Confederate troops were out of Maryland, the the Emancipation Proclamation was made. 
There are times, I think, in our lives when we do need to make certain promises, as it were, to God. We do need to take inventory of our lives like these Jewish people did in Jerusalem. Took inventory of their lives in relation to the law of God. If you look at verse 28, 29, you'll see twice the law of the Lord is mentioned. They heard God's word presented. They looked at their lives and they said, you know, I'm not living up to these words. And they now signed on the dotted line, our intention is to do just that. We want to be responsive to God's word, not just hearers of the word, as Jacob says, but rather also doers of the word. And what I find impressive about these individuals was their determination not to just be moved emotionally in their heart by God's word so as to be sorrowful for their sin. Not only to say words of sorrow and repentance, but also a determination in their hearts and minds and in their actions and wills to do as the word has said. Now, we know that if we are to attempt to do what God's word says in our own merit, we will fail. But if we determine to do what God has instructed us to do, relying upon the work of the spirit of God in our hearts, we can be more and more conformed to the image of Messiah, in whose image we are being created and transformed day by day, moment by moment. I remember sitting in Dr. Ryrie's class at Dallas Seminary, and when we were talking about God's work of sanctification, he was saying it's 100% the work of God, and it's 100% the work of us. It requires us to be yielded unto him fully and completely, as Paul says in Romans, that we are to give ourselves to him completely for the renewing of our minds and the renewing of our lives. Now take a look at what these individuals signed up for. First in verse 30, he says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. So this was, they were saying, we're not going to get engaged in intermarriage. Now, the issue here is not racial. The issue here is not discriminatory in nature. If it was, God would not have been happy with Moses' marriage to Zipporah, who is a Midianite. If that was so, God would not have been happy with Boaz's marriage to Ruth, who was a Moabitess. If that was the case, the genealogy of our Messiah would not have had four Gentile women in it. So the issue here has nothing to do with racism or discrimination. It has everything to do with what the foreign wives might bring among the Jewish people, namely the worship of foreign gods. That's what is at the heart of this statement. What they're saying is we're not going to allow foreign gods to distract us 
or persuade us to worship any other God than the living God of Israel. In effect, this statement was a statement about their love for the Lord, their God, with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength, so that they would refrain from anything that might lead them from worshiping the true God. Now, Solomon was a very wise man, wasn't he? The wisest man in all the earth. And yet, despite his great wisdom and his great opportunity as the son of David to sit on the throne of Israel, the kingdom was divided after his death. There are a number of reasons, not least of which is the fact that he had over 1,000 foreign wives. And the result of having these foreign wives was the penetration of false gods among the people of Israel. And it led them astray and to infighting and to division. That is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, not to be unequally yoked. Now, there's no guarantee that if you are married to a believer, your marriage is going to be a happy one. Because there are more principles that are at stake and are needed in having a successful marriage than merely marrying one who is a believer or not. But in my experience, and to, with those individuals who had come to me in the past for counseling with regard to their marriage, and those marriages that were made up of a believer and an unbeliever, and in some of those instances, the marriages were really good marriages. But in every instance that I have been in, in experience with, there has always been a sadness and a disappointment. Because the thing that was most important to that person who was a believer was their relationship with God, which they could not share with their spouse. And though they shared many things, the most important thing to them was left unfulfilled in their relationship with each other. And so it is important, I think, as single individuals, as young people that are contemplating marriage, desiring marriage, that you learn the lesson and apply the principle that we see here in Nehemiah, as well as Paul's words to the Corinthians, not to be unequally yoked. Be with those who love the Lord our God as much as you do. And you will find that perhaps, and like I said, not in every instance, but perhaps your marriage will be fuller and richer despite the challenges and difficulties because the Lord your God sits on the throne of both of your hearts. The first thing they commit themselves to in writing is their faithfulness to God and not allowing anything to come in the way that might distract them from the living God of the universe who has chosen them. And thus they will refrain as much as they may fall in love with someone from another nation. 
They will refrain from that because of the fear of false gods eroding our nation and our lives. Look at the second thing they mention in verse 31. When the neighboring people, so they sign on, first of all, verse 30, that God would be preeminent. In verse 31, that when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. It was because of their failure to allow the land to lie fallow every seven years for some some uh, ten cycles of years, that Israel went into captivity for 70 years to the Babylonians. The Sabbath was a gift from God like all of the law. Remember what Paul says, the law is holy, just, and good. And if we think about this, what God is telling us is he wants us to rest. I mean, I think this is really kind of neat to think of in this regard. That the Sabbath is not a prohibition against having a good time, having fun, and enjoying life. In fact, he says it's a commandment so as to rest from our labors. You don't have to work seven days a week, God is saying. You don't have to work all the time. That there's a moment in which you can find some relaxation and enjoyment from our efforts. To be sure, we must work. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Secondly, God created us to work. He placed us in the garden so as to work the garden. He created us in his image to be like him. And just as he worked for six days in creating the world and rested on the seventh day, so he expects us to work as well contribute to society as it exists. And in the context of the congregation, to exercise our gifts, to build up one another, to use our talents and abilities to help each other and support each other and to provide for one another. If we don't work, we can't give to others. And therefore, we can't love our neighbor as ourselves. So God has set from, set up from the very beginning of creation, opportunity to work, but he then tells us you ought to and you must rest. What God is saying is that our work ought to flow out of our rest. And too often our work is filled with high anxiety and tension and strife. God is saying our work ought to be accomplished through a moment of rest so that our work is not of that kind of intensity. Maybe it's easier for me to say than some of of you, given the jobs that you have. But keep in mind, this is what God says, and this is what these people promise to do. But they also say, every seventh year, we're also going to allow the land to lie fallow and rest. Now, check this out. I was reading on the commandment that is found to allow the land to lie in rest for seven years. Look at Leviticus chapter 25, where this commandment is presented. And you'll see why God commands this. First of all, in chapter 25, verse 1 of Leviticus, it says, The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
Speak to the Israelites, say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you. The land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields. And for six years, prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a rest to the Lord. Do not sow, do not reap. The land is to have a year of rest. Now, if you go down further, when he relates this to the year of Jubilee, every seven sevens of years, every 49 years, he tells us in verse 18, follow my decrees, be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. And then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. Now, get this, in verse 20, we may be saying, look, if I don't work All the hours and opportunities and days I have, I won't make enough money. And I won't have enough financial resources to take care of my needs. The Israelites might have been saying, if we don't till the land and plant and harvest during that entire year, how are we going to live? How are we going to have food? And so look what God says. Verse 21, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So what is the Sabbath commandment ultimately all about? It's about trusting God to provide for our needs. It's about believing what Yeshua tells us, that he knows the number of our heads, that he takes care of the birds of the air and the animals on the land, that he takes care of even the flowers themselves, that God takes care of his creation and he will take care of us. I had not really seen that before till I read it a little more carefully. But the Sabbath commandment is a commandment about trust. It's about saying, God, I will trust you to provide for all of my needs. And therefore, I need not, as Paul says, to be anxious about anything. But with prayer and supplication, we can make our prayers known to the Lord and he will provide for us. It is why Abraham when he offers up his son and sets up an altar and names it Adonai Yireh, the Lord who sees, the Lord who provides. That's what the imagery means. God sees the need and he will make provision for it. What these individuals did in Nehemiah's day was they were signing their name to the fact that, God, you're going to be number one. And anything that would get in the way of you being preeminent in my life, our life, our country, our nation, our congregation, our family, we will see to it that it is refrained from. Anything that might distract us from truly trusting you, knowing you'll take care of us, We will work at remembering all that you have always did for us, what you have always done for us, and we will trust you that we can rest and our needs will be met. Take a look at the third thing, they promise. 
They say in verse 32, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set on the table of showbread, for the regular grain offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the festivals, and the offerings for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The third thing they're saying is we're going to remember the process by which you make provision for our sin. The atoning process. There needs to be grain offerings. There needs to be animal sacrifice. There needs to be a system set up whereby wood is brought to the temple so that the offerings could be offered to God. In other words, they will remember what God has provided that they might be redeemed by him. And that's why today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a moment of remembrance when we remember what God's provision for us is. This had been forgotten. For 70 years, the temple was was destroyed, and they had not been sacrificing faithfully to God. And they imagined other ways and concocted ways that they could gain God's favor. And now they're being reminded and they are reminding themselves that it is God's provision for them that will enable them to stand right before God. And thus we too have to keep in the forefront of our minds what God has done to provide us with salvation and grace. His only begotten son has come into our world and gave up his life that we might have life through him. Once a month, we observe these elements, the juice and the matzah, representing the broken body of our Lord, what he endured, and his shed blood in our behalf. What they were saying is we are going to devote ourselves to the atonement God has provided. And there's a need for us to always remember the cost that was expended when God sent his son to die for our sin. Notice in verse 35, he says, we will also assume responsibility to bring in the first fruits of our crops, to bring the firstborn of our sons. They even say of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. If you look at Exodus chapter 13, you will see why God tells them to bring the firstborn. And it's to remind them of the mechanism that God used to redeem his people. It was the firstborn lamb that was to be offered, the blood of which would be sprinkled on the two side doorposts and upper lintel. I think what is to be reminded here is that that Israel did not belong to herself, that Israel belonged to God. He redeemed her, and therefore he purchased her, purchased her by bringing her out from Egypt. And thus, as a result, Israel was to dedicate 
the firstborn of everything to God. It was a way of demonstrating before the Lord that everything we have belongs unto you. Ourselves, our children, everything we own. It is God's and not our own. Paul reiterates this same truth. We are bought with a price. The precious blood of our Messiah. We are not our own. And so when we think about our lives, what we need to ask ourselves is, are we doing what God would have us to do and not merely what we would prefer to do? Because we are not our own. And so those at the time of Nehemiah, as the walls are rebuilt and as they're rededicating their life to God, they're saying to him that we will do your will because you own us and we belong to you. And then look further in verse 37. He says, Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priests the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings and the fruit of all our trees and our new wine and oil. We will bring a tithe of our crops to the Lord, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. So they talk now about supporting the ministry and work at the temple and among Israel with their tithes. In the Hebrew scriptures, there was a tenth of everything was contributed to the Lord. At the same time, about the same time, Malachi is going to say, bring in your tithes, test the Lord's and see that the Lord will greatly increase all that you have. Now, in the Brit Tadashah, in the New Testament, we're not, no longer are we told to give a tithe. In fact, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians, uh, or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and then again in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about giving, he says, we are to give in regards to how the Lord prospered us. In other words, there's no set percentage that we are supposed to contribute to God's work. But rather, he says that we are to give as the Lord has prospered us and the Lord loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we're to give out of gratitude for what God has given to us. We're to think of our lives and to think about what God has done for us. We're to remind ourselves of all the challenges God has brought us through. And out of gratitude for what God has done, we say, Lord, we want to give to your work and your ministry. We think about how God has made provision for us when we've had need, and we say, God, we want to give out of gratitude. We're not merely to give because it's our duty, but out of thanksgiving before God. And so those here in Israel with Nehemiah, they're reflecting over what God has done for them. The wall is up, the temple has been rebuilt, and now the people are saying, Lord, we want to rededicate our lives to you. And as we dedicate our lives to you, we're going to give out of gratitude for what you have done for us. And the last thing they say, they conclude by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, they're saying we will not neglect worshiping together. The Lord has called us to worship him, they're saying. In the Brit Hadashah, in the book written to the Jewish believers. 
We're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the day of the Lord is approaching, as we draw near to that time when the Lord is coming. And thus our worship together, our corporate lifting of our voices and our praise to God is what is enjoined here. So let's just review this one more time. Look at chapter 10 once more. The people have gathered together. They've heard God's word presented. They saw their need and thus they repented of their sinfulness before God and they've asked for God's forgiveness. They then said, we are going to live for you. We want to walk with you. We want to obey you. And so they say in verse 30, we will make you preeminent and not allow things to get in the way of our walk with you. In verse 31, they say, we will trust you and therefore we will rest on the Sabbath and not feel that we have to work each and every day in order that our needs might be met. We will remember that you, Lord, provide for us as you've promised in Leviticus chapter 25. He tells us that we will reflect and think deeply about what you have done for us in that you have made an atonement for our sin. And what you have done makes us right with you. It's not what we have done, but it's what God has done for us by providing the atoning sacrifice. They tell, they sign themselves on the dotted line saying, we will bring our firstborn and we will remember that we are owned by you. We belong to you and that we are not our own. And therefore we will be determined to do what you would have us to do and not merely what we would desire. And in verse 37, they say, and we will give, and we will give out of gratitude, and we will give cheerfully because of what you have done for us. It will be an expression of our thankfulness unto you. And then they conclude by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will gather for worship and for praise. And then one final point, if you look at verse 29. Though they make this determination here, it will not be too long where they will fail to live up to it. As I said before, so often we sign our names to dotted lines. We are moved out of our emotions because we really want to do these things and we find ourselves failing to do them. The Israelites here seem to reflect the same thing because look what they say. Verse 29, all these now join their brothers, the nobles. They bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses. Where they failed is precisely there. Perhaps they thought they could do this in their own strength and by their own merit. But what we realize is that the law serves to reveal our sin and our need. It is not an antidote for it. It is only the grace of God that is an antidote for sin in our lives. We must turn to him, but we must turn. And when we turn, we must desire to be devoted to him and to live for him.